Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis 5. And we want everybody to have a Bible, so these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. Several years ago, a syndicated columnist wrote an article in the Washington Post. She said, we don't seem to have a word anymore for wrong in the moral sense. As in, for example, theft is wrong. Let me quickly qualify, she said. There's surely no shortage of people condemning other people on such grounds, especially their political opponents or characters they just don't care for. Name-calling is still very much in vogue. But as a guide and a standard to live by, You don't hear so much about right and wrong these days. The very notion is considered politically, not to say personally, embarrassing, since it has such a repressive Neanderthal ring to it. Instead, we've developed a broad range of alternatives to right and wrong. Instead of right and wrong, there is right and stupid. This is the one you use when your candidate gets caught stealing. Or for that matter, when anyone on your side does something reprehensible. That was really dumb of him. Or instead of right and wrong, there is right and not illegal. This is the avoidance of admitting that something is wrong by pointing out that it's not specifically or even inferentially prohibited by the Constitution or for that matter, mentioned by name in the criminal code or the Ten Commandments. But both as individuals and as a society, we do things every day that we know to be wrong, even though they may not fall within a class of legally punishable acts or tickets to eternal damnation. Instead of right and wrong, there's also right and sick. I think no one could have foreseen the degree to which an originally reasonable and humane assumption that some of what once was regarded as wrongdoing is committed by people acting out of ailment rather than moral choice, that that would be seized upon and exploited to exonerate every kind of malfeasance. Instead of right and wrong, there is also right and only to be expected. As in, what do you expect from people who've been mistreated for so long? They're bound to finally rise up and attack their oppressors at some point. Instead of right and wrong, there is right and complicated, as in, it's complicated. And then the writer concludes with, as I listen to the moral arguments swirling about us, I become ever more persuaded that our real problem is this, that the still small voice of conscience has become far too small and utterly still. Now, I read that for you at the beginning of today's message, because today I'd like to reemphasize one of the major themes to which we're introduced in the opening pages of the Bible. Having completed now a look at the first four chapters of Genesis, I'd like today to revisit a topic that we've seen in chapters three and four, one that recurs throughout the rest of the eleven hundred and eighty five chapters in the Bible, and it's foundational to an understanding of the rest of God's Word. That topic is sin. Now, why should we take time to review a topic that is decidedly unpleasant? 
Well, one author answered that question, why restate the Christian doctrine of sin this this way? The reason is that although traditional Christianity is true, its truth saws against the grain of much in contemporary culture and therefore needs constant sharpening. Christianity's major doctrines need regular restatement so that people may believe them or believe them anew. Its classic awareness needs to be evoked so that people may have them or have them again. Recalling and confessing our sin, he says, is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. But anyone who tries to recover the knowledge of sin these days must overcome long odds. To put it mildly, modern consciousness does not encourage moral reproach. In particular, it does not encourage self-reproach. So preachers mumble about sin. The other traditional custodians of moral awareness often ignore or trivialize or evade it. Some of these evasions take time and even training. As sociologist James Davison Hunter has observed, school teachers no longer say, Stop it, please. You're disturbing the class. The reason they don't say that is these are judgmental words. Instead, to a strong-armed youth who's rattling classroom windows with his tennis ball... Educationally correct teachers put a sequence of caring questions to him. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? How does doing that make you feel? The word sin, Hunter adds, now finds its home mostly on dessert menus. Peanut butter binge and chocolate challenge are sinful. Lying is not. And so he says the new measure for sin is caloric. But from a Christian standpoint, friends, we need to be ever aware of the seriousness of sin because when sin is minimized, hear this, God's grace is diminished. When sin is minimized, God's grace is diminished. And further, an understanding of sin as the primary motivation for what human beings do means that you'll not only understand yourself, but you'll understand others and our world differently and better. A Christian young person who goes to college and is variously told that the problem of our world is imperialism or colonialism or capitalism or communism or fundamentalism, that Christian young people person will respond in her mind, if not with her words. No, the problem with the world is ultimately sin. All of those other things may be proximate causes, but the ultimate cause goes back to the opening pages of the Bible. And that Bible says in chapter 2, now I had you turn to chapter 5, even though we're not going to look at chapter 5. The reason I did that was just so you wouldn't go crazy when I had you turn to chapter 2, thinking to yourself, I thought we already covered chapter 2. And you've come set for us to look at chapter 5 which we'll probably do next week. But if you will take a look at chapter 2. Our Bible says in chapter 2 and verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
And then we go into chapter 3, and we know the story in chapter 3. We covered it several weeks ago. How the man and the woman, in direct opposition to what God has commanded, disobey what he has said. They take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat from it. And indeed, God's word is always firm and sure. And as a result, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 22, verse 22, chapter 3, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So this tree from which they were not to eat is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now having eaten from it, verse 22 of chapter 3, the man and the woman have now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now, what does that, what does that mean? Well, I explained several weeks ago in our 13th message. This is now the 21st in this series. But back when we covered chapter 2 in that 13th message, I explained what Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton says about this. He says, the knowledge of good and evil is a legal phrase. It's a way of saying that one can formulate and articulate a judicial decision. God is the one who is supposed to decide what is good and evil, but now with sin... Man becomes like God, according to chapter 3 and verse 22, seeking to determine what is good and evil for himself. And so now the knowledge of good and evil means this. I will make my own rules. The man and the woman now become autonomous, self-ruling, self-governing from God. And friends, as a result of that, that's the world that we live in. And because it's the world that we have been born into and we have been shaped by, we have little imagination for a world that's any different. Have you ever thought about that? That this world was designed to be completely different than it is now. And yet it's what we're immersed in. It's the air we breathe. It's the water that we become accustomed to swim in, as it were. But we, the way we live personally and the way those around us live is not the way it's supposed to be. And we have made our own rules, and now in our world we live with its consequences. In the words of the comic strip Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. And so today we revisit this foundational issue of sin. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we come to you again with open hands, asking to receive from you that which only you can give. We ask you, Lord, to grant us by your spirit to understand the significance of what you have told us in your word. Today about this most important topic of sin. Help us, Lord, to do that which is unnatural because of our sin nature. Help us to be able to focus upon this unpleasant topic. Lord, we are programmed in our day to only do those things and engage in those things that are pleasing to us. But you have told us throughout your word about this most unpleasant topic because it is real, because it has real effects. And because the only real solution to this problem is what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you to help us to focus, to learn, and to be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, we have, as each week, an outline inserted in your program, and I encourage you to take that out now if you don't have that already. There are three major points you'll see there. We'll spend more time on points two and three than on point number one. The first point is this. We want to look at what sin is. What sin is. And I have three things that sin, or excuse me, four things that sin is. The first is this. Sin is what we are. Sin is what we are. That is, by nature, we are sinners. So every one of us comes into the world and comes into the world at conception, even before birth, having acquired a nature that is sinful, a tendency towards sin that every one of us has acquired from our parents who ultimately acquired it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's why the Bible says things like Psalm 51, where David says of himself, I was sinful at birth, but then going nine months before that, sinful from the time actually that my mother conceived me. The prophet Jeremiah says this about the heart of humanity, the heart, the seat of one's thinking and the center of all that one does. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then in your New Testament, the second part of your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that we are, as a result of this sin nature by nature, deserving of God's judgment, deserving of wrath. And so it is a hopeless condition Unless God intervenes, the condition with which that we enter into this world, all of us, sin is what we are by our very nature. We acquire from our parents and ultimately our first parents, Adam and Eve, a sin nature. Sin is what we are. But secondly, sin is what we think. Sin is what we think. I mentioned just a bit ago from Jeremiah 17 that in the Bible, heart is used to speak of the control center of the person, and that includes the thoughts and all that then emanates from the thoughts. Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts. The words then that we speak and the actions that we carry out, they all have at their heart the thoughts that we think. We think in particular ways and therefore we speak in particular ways and do particular things. But it goes back to our thinking and our thinking is sinful because we are naturally sinners. Thirdly, not only is sin what we are and what we think, but it's what we say. Sin is what we say. Romans chapter 3 in your New Testament, there's a catalog. Beginning in verse 13... And going all the way down to verse 18, verses 13 through 18 of Romans chapter 3, there's a catalog of quotations that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, gives from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And he gives these quotations to show that what he's saying about sin in that chapter has always been the case. That it's not something he's making up in the New Testament. That this is something that was true of humanity going back to the Old Testament. That's why he brings in all of these quotations from the first part of your Bible. As he proves our sinfulness. And in that catalog of quotations that he has chosen, he chooses different parts of our anatomy to show that sin has affected every piece of us. And as part of that then collection of quotes, he has some about 
the way we speak. It says in Romans chapter 3, we have tongues that practice deceit. The poison of, of vipers is on lips. We have mouths that are full of cursing and bitterness. So sin is in what we say. And sin is in what all of us say. All of us here. Friends, do not exempt yourself from this catalog of sin. As I must not exempt myself. We think to ourselves, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not that bad. But God says that our mouths show our sin nature and the way we talk. And there are two mistakes that we can make with regard to sin. One is the mistake of seeing all sin as equal, especially as equal in its consequences. As if murdering someone and a 10-year-old stealing some candy are the same. But you hear even Christians say this. And by the way, you know when you hear Christians say this most often? It's when they're guilty of something. I mean, when you're guilty of something, the thing you want to do is level all sin. What I did is the same as what you did. And it's all equal. Rather than dealing with the heinousness of what's done, and particularly the consequences. But you know the Bible doesn't do that. And one quick example of that is found in 1 Corinthians 5, where there was a particular sexual sin that was taking place in the congregation in the city of Corinth. And Paul, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, is writing to correct that and to, and to condemn their failure to correct that. And at the very beginning, he says this, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, but notice this, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Now, what's, what's implied there? That this is such a heinous form of sin. Turns out, as you go on to read, that this was an incestuous relationship. The one that even the world would not tolerate. And you're allowing that to go on in a Christian community? But the other mistake is to focus on consequential sin. Things like that or things like murder. But then give more so-called innocent sins a pass. And there are two problems with doing that. We create a category of what author Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. He has a book by that title, Respectable Sins. And also, it's a mistake to think that you can know the consequences of your sin. You know, we look at those sins that are more consequential, things that obviously have bad results and and negative effects on you and on others. And so we call them consequential sins. But the truth of the matter is, it's impossible for us to know the full consequences of our sin. Even, and perhaps especially, sins of the tongue. Hear this. When the words are out of your mouth and they are given to someone else, those words are also now no longer under your control. You give those words in gossip or slander to someone else and now they're out of your control. And when they get spread around now by that person to a third, a fourth, and a fifth, and it comes back around to you, it will do no good to say, that was not my intention. Indeed, that was not your intention, but you have violated God's commands in the use of your tongue. And the Bible warned you of that. When in James chapter 3, it refers to the tongue as a spark that sets a wildfire. And friends, you know one characteristic of a wildfire is it's out of control. 
but it begins with a spark. Sin is what we are by nature. Sin is what we think. Sin is what we say. And then I say in your outline, that all gives rise to sin being what we do. Sin is what we do. Now, this is where we most often focus. These are behavioral things. These are actions. But preceding the actions is our nature. We're not sinners because we sin. Hear this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We do the stuff we do because we are the people we are. And we are that by nature. And so we talk that way because of our nature. We think that way because of our nature. And then we do the things we do. Paul wrote of himself in Romans chapter 7. Evil I keep on doing. But it's worse than all of what I've just laid out. (laughs) That sin is what we are by nature. And sin is what we think. And sin is what we say. And sin is what we do. It's even worse than that because sin is not just in what we commit. Sin is in what we omit. And so there are not only sins of commission, the stuff I I do overtly, but then there are the sins that I omit. And that's why James chapter 4 says this, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. So it's not just what I am by nature, It's what I fail to be. You say, well, how could I be any different? You know, I was conceived and I was born. How could I be any different? But if you were with us several weeks ago, when we looked at Adam's representation of us before God, Adam was our perfect representative. Adam did what we would have done. And so it's no excuse to say that's on Adam. No, that's on us. And so sin is not just what I am by nature, but what I fail to be. In my nature, we were made to reflect God and display his character, but we omit that we don't do that. It's not just what I think, but what I fail to think. I was made and you were made to think God's thoughts after him. But we fail to do that sins of omission. It's not just in what I say, but in what I fail to say. God puts someone in my path for me to encourage that person with the tongue and the mouth that he has given me. But I fail to do that. A timely word, fitly spoken, fails to come from my lips. I have sinned by omission. It's not just in what I do that's wrong. It's when I fail to do what's right. Now, with all that, (laughs) this issue of sin puts us really in an absolutely hopeless condition, does it not? If God does not intervene. So that's what sin is. Now, secondly, in your outline. Here's what sin does. It's what sin is, but here's what sin does. And I have several things that sin does. And this list could be longer. First of all, sin divides. It divides. And the first and more most important and the most profound and serious separation, isolation, division is between the individual and God. Sin divides us, separates us from God. So now people who were made to worship God, people who were made to reflect God, people who were made for communion with God, find themselves because of sin blaming God. For our circumstances. How many times have you 
Perhaps you are right now resenting God for where he has placed you. Dear friend, understand this is only because of our sin nature, having divided us, separated us from God. And so we blame God due to our circumstances. And our circumstances, our circumstances, now hear this, that we created. You've got to see yourself in the garden. You've got to see yourself in the garden, as I must see myself in the garden, disobeying God very directly. And now as a consequence of that, being separated from God, removed from the presence of God, and out of the garden. And God placing there the cherubim with the flaming swords so that the humanity could not enter and reach out to the tree of life and live forever in this sinful condition. We're estranged from God, but we're estranged from God because of our own sin. And the consequence of that, I've tried to think about illustrations and analogies of that. But it's like a child having left his home of his own will, a teenager rebelling against his parents, leaving his home, and now suffering the consequences of being out on your own. Now live in a fallen world and a sin-cursed world on your own. And that's where humanity has placed itself in its rebellion against God. But not only does this division from God, separation from God, lead lead to this estrangement. And now you've left your home and you're on your own and you're trying to make your own way. And what a way we have made. But it also leads to things like worry. Have you ever connected your worry to the fact That we come into this world separated from God? I mean, think about it the other way. If I was now, if you were now, are now, what you were intended to be, in in communion and fellowship with God, would you be worrying at all? The answer to that is absolutely not. Adam and Eve originally had nothing to be worried about. But now because of sin, now because of this estrangement, we worry. We worry whether or not God is really going to come through, whether or not God is really going to fulfill his promises. And so it leads to things like worry. It leads to things like depression. Sin divides. It divides us most profoundly from God, but it divides us from one another as well. Sin divides from people. People who were made like we were made to be in harmony with God were made to be in harmony with one another, but now no longer in harmony, but rather in opposition and in competition, and in comparing and contrasting ourselves with one another. So all of the human condition in our relationships with one another all now flow from this division that sin causes. Jealousy. Anger. All of it comes from the division of sin between people. Sin not only divides us from God and from each other, Divides us from other creatures. Can you imagine a world in which, as the Bible says, will one day be again a world in which the lion and the lamb will lay together? A lion and a lamb. But we can't imagine a world like that, can we? Because for us, the the world of nature is red in tooth and in claw, it's bloody and ugly. And dangerous. Sin divides. 
And secondly, sin defies. It divides and it defies. It's defiance of God. Sin defies God. And that starts at the very beginning. Starts at the very beginning of our existence. One of the first words that babies learn is no. And then quickly thereafter, mine. Let me say to you, dear parents, and as a, a fellow parent who has, who has waged the war and had the journey with little ones, your toddler is not just tired or hungry every time they defy you and say no. And yet that's your tendency to make excuses for your child, oh, he or she is just. Now, sometimes they're tired or hungry. And a sensitive parent knows when. But not every time they do that are they just tired or hungry and they say no. You know one of the reasons they say no? Forgive the language, it's because their old man and their old lady say no. And because their grandparents and their grandparents and all the way to our first parents said no to God. Defying God. Tantrums are about getting my way. Teen rebellion is not just a phase. And yet we, only knowing sin and having no imagination for the life that God made us for and has called us to, we say teen rebellion is just a phase that someone is expected to go through. The fact that so many go through it does not mean in any way, shape, or form that we should go through it or that it must be gone through. It's not just a phase. It's the sin natural, the sin natural way. It's our sin nature. Sin nature's way of reacting to authority and parents. And that's why that great theologian, John Cougar Mellencamp, said, I fight authority, and authority always wins. I fight authority, authority always wins, but... Keep fighting. Because that's our nature. Sin divides. Sin defies. Thirdly, sin demands. Sin demands. Sin demands my rights. Sin demands my way. And when that's violated, then there is going to be a cost, a price to be paid by the one who violates it. Sin demands my rights and my ways. And so in our relationships, sin causes legitimate desires to morph into illegitimate demands. Desires for something innocuous, natural, something even good, then become something that I demand you do or else. A wife desires that her husband be attentive to her, be a spiritual leader in the home. These are all good things, of course. But that can easily morph because we demand in sin that now becomes a requirement that you must meet or you will pay. But sin not only causes us to demand, hear this, sin is a demanding taskmaster over us. Sin demands, sin in us causes us to demand from others, but sin demands of us. Someone has said, and I've tried to look at who originated this quote. It's been used many times by preachers over the years. 
And I can't find the originator. But someone has said sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin demands. It divides. It defies. It demands. And I say fourthly, it deceives. Sin deceives. Sin will promise you. This will be good. Go this direction. This will be good. This conversation will be good. Even though it's a little gossipy, even though it's a little bit of slander, it's only a little bit, this will be good. Sin deceives. This relationship will be good. Because this relationship will be giving you the things you're not getting in your home. You'll even convince yourself you'll be better equipped to be a better husband or or, or wife if you'll take that step. Sin lies. Sin deceives. And sin can do it in the form of something in a bottle or a cup or a powder or other substance. Such that it deceives you in such a way that you become entrapped to it. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, alcohol goes down smoothly. But in the end, it bites like a snake. But you know, when the alcohol's advertised, there's no biting snake there in the ad, is there? It's only in the end that it bites like a snake. And that's why sin is called deceitful in the Bible. Hebrews 3 says this, We should encourage one another so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And friends, this is where the disease model of sin fails. You see, when you're told that alcoholism, as an example, I'm not just picking on those who are alcoholics and who have struggled with that. Just using that as an example. But when you're told that alcoholism is a disease, it's true, but it's only true after you've blown through all the warning signs and believed the alluring lie of sin. Then you are trapped. And then it has you in its grasp. And then it's affected your body and your body's cravings. And now indeed you are entrapped. And now indeed you have a physical desire for it. But it didn't start that way. Substance abuse then is not a disease that finds you. It's one that you pursue. And when you catch it, it entraps you so that you now indeed have some of the same characteristics of sickness and disease, but it's a sickness and disease acquired quite differently from cancer and other maladies with which any of us can be afflicted. Sin divides, it defies, it demands, it deceives. And lastly, sin destroys. It destroys. Sin destroys stuff. It destroys things. You know, the reason that things don't last is because there's a curse on the environment as a result of sin. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 3. So things don't last. They break. And so you need to have such a comprehensive understanding of sin that when you go through your daily routine and you see things breaking, 
And you think to see things wearing out. You think to yourself, that's not the way it was supposed to be. Sin causes that. Sin destroys. Sin not only destroys things, sin destroys us. Our bodies, all of us, are decaying. And we are all on an inexorable path toward the final decay and death. And that is all as a result of sin. Sin destroys our body in sickness. It destroys our bodies ultimately in death. Death now seems natural for us. But biblically, death is to be treated as an intruder, not the way it's supposed to be. Sin destroys relationships. People that you should have been able to trust violate that trust. Betrayal is now part of the human condition because sin destroys. And we could say, if I wanted to add another D here, I could say sin delights. I didn't, as you see in your outline, but I could. Because the truth of the matter is that sin does delight for a period of time. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 said of Moses, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's what sin is and what sin does. We could go on for a long time, but that's just a short list of what sin does. But here, lastly, is what sin requires. What sin requires. Do you see, dear friends, that because sin is so pervasive, because it is in who we are, and because of who we are, it's in how we think, Because it's in how we think, then it affects what we say and what we do. But not just what we think and say and do, but what we fail to think and say and do. Do you see with all of that, that now sin requires a remedy that you can't give? Sin requires now a remedy that is outside of you. And that's what the good news of the gospel is. The bad news is that sin is this pervasive, this deep, this all-encompassing, The good news, the gospel is that Christ has done what you couldn't do. First Peter chapter three says he suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. How did he do that? He did that in the way of that great exchange that I prayed about earlier in our service. That this great exchange of our sin onto Christ and His righteousness onto us takes place. That's the great exchange that is the beauty of the gospel. And it's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You not only need this new record with God. That comes in this fancy term called justification that many of you are familiar with. Just as if I'd never sinned because Christ's righteousness is counted to me, imputed to me, because he lived the life that I should have lived. And when I come to him in faith, that's counted to me. Thanks be to God. But I not only need this justification, but in the here and now, God calls me as his child and you as his child to obey him. 
causes you to progressive calls you to progressively put aside sin and pursue righteousness. But how can I do that? If I'm as all encompassing sinful as we've talked about, how can I do that? And the way you do that is God not only gives you a new record, he gives you a new heart. And Titus chapter 3 speaks of that new heart. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Hear this, friends. You need not only justification, you need regeneration. And regeneration is a change of the individual from the inside out by the Holy Spirit of God. And both of those happen when we come to Christ, believing who he is and what he has done. And it's only when you have that regenerated heart that you have the heart of wisdom that will listen to the words of the wise. Let me say that again. It's only when you have that regenerated heart that you will heed the words of wisdom that are given by the wise. You see, if you don't have that heart of wisdom, then I can dispense, as I did, all of these things that sin does, and it doesn't penetrate you at all. But God gives us a new heart to heed wisdom so that we see those warnings, and we now care about those warnings, and we avoid those things about which God warns us. And so how are you going to live your life? You're going to continue to live your life as if this is the way it was intended to be? God has made very clear at the very beginning of the word of God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I have made a new way for you. And I've given you a new record, but not only a new record, but a new heart for you to go a new path. You know, I fear that so many Christians are going to come to the end of their time. And they're going to, in effect, quote that great theologian, Frank Sinatra. You know, when it's all over and it's all said and done, I'm glad to be able to say I did it my way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Let me tell you something, Frank Sinatra, and all of you would be Frank Sinatras. Doing it your way, doing it your way will lead to death. Doing it your way is the way of sin. Doing it your way and my way is the way of the first Adam. Only through the second Adam do we do it God's way. Your take-home truth then is this. Sin motivates everything in the world. It motivates everything that... Now notice I have the word world there in quotes, using it the way the Bible does. It is the sinful system of values and the sinful arrangement, the cosmos is the New Testament Greek word that is set against God because of sin. And sin motivates everything in the world. And sin captivates everyone in the world. That is, captivates, allures, and then holds captive everyone in the world. 
It motivates everything, and it captivates everyone. Dear Christian, you've been called out of the world and unto God. And to the person who came into this room doing it the Sinatra way, he's calling you out of the world and to himself. How does that happen? You receive the justification that he supplied in the life and death of Jesus Christ. He changes your heart from the inside out in regeneration. But all of that happens at the time that the Spirit of God moves on you and you're able to do what the screen says. Realize that you're a sinner in the ways and many more that have been described today. Recognize that Christ died for you and lived for you. Repent. God, I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us to review this difficult topic, painful topic, but absolutely accurate with regard to me and my life and my motivations and my thoughts and my words and my deeds. Absolutely accurate because it's your description of everyone in this room and everyone who comes into the human family. All of us are conceived and are born sinful, apart from God, with all of the destruction that goes with that. And Lord, we are without hope and without God in the world unless you intervene. But thanks be to you that you have intervened in Jesus and by your Spirit. We thank you that 2,000 years ago that God stepped into time, into history, to live as we should have lived and die the death that we deserved. And we thank you that at a point in time in our lives, those of us that have been brought out of the world into you, your Holy Spirit made us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And I pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would work upon the hearts of your people now to renew in us an understanding of sin and a hatred for sin in all of its vestiges. And I pray that you would by your mercy and your grace, draw some out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. Some who are recognizing for the first time that sin has affected them and motivates them and captivates them. And that their only hope is to come to the Lord Jesus, believing who he is and what he's done. And as a result of all of this, we will give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for all you accomplish. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.